Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The drug death rate in Scotland is three times higher than elsewhere in Britain and ten times higher than in Europe. We look into the causes of the crisis and the plans to address it that are at last being proposed. And there are 47 indigenous languages used in Peru, but Quechua is the most widely spoken. It used to be an almost shameful thing, but the language is on the rise, thanks in part to a bit of nationalism and a bit of pop music gold. First up, though. The climate fight came to big oil this week. At Wednesday's shareholder meeting of ExxonMobil, an American supermajor, activist investors installed at least two green-leaning board members. This is a, a major statement for shareholders and particularly for people that care about the climate and care about the future of this company. On the same day, rebellious shareholders at Chevron, another American firm, pushed through a plan to cut the company's carbon emissions. Boom! It happens to Chevron. This is also today, a shareholders meeting, an overwhelming vote. And a Dutch court ordered Shell to cut its emissions by nearly half in the next decade. A landmark decision with far-reaching implications for environmental policy worldwide. All three companies have made positive noises about reducing emissions and being part of an energy transition. But this week's trio of climate surprises shows how corporate boards, investors, and courts aren't minded to wait for oil majors to take the initiative. The ExxonMobil shareholder meeting this week marks a turning point in the history of big oil. Vijay Vethiswaran is The Economist's global energy and climate innovation editor. This is the first time a major American corporation has had to accept a humiliating defeat in the hands of an activist investor that placed a dissident board member on its board. In fact, not just one, calling for a fundamental U-turn on the company's strategy. And so how did this vote actually come about? A small hedge fund called Engine Number 1, which was just recently formed and which holds a very tiny stake in ExxonMobil, far less than 1%, managed to galvanize the support of massive investment funds like CalPERS, which is a Californian mega pension fund, uh, the New York State Employees Pension Fund. Uh, More than a trillion dollars worth of capital are held by some of these more progressive pension funds that are very interested in the issue of climate change. It won the support of important proxy advisory services, as they're known, such as ISS and Glass-Lewis. These agencies give recommendations that are often followed by the big institutional investors on how to vote. And they both supported the tiny dissident 
arguing for a change in Exxon's strategy. So who are these new board members and what will they do, do you think? The dissidents put forward a slate of four executives with energy experience, but with much more interest in renewable energy, low carbon technologies than those that are serving currently on Exxon's board. The company was very hostile to these directors, but in the end, two out of the four have been confirmed as elected, Gregory Goff and Kaisa Haitala. A third, Andy Karsner, who served as the renewable energy czar under George W. Bush, is still in play. The company says the votes are not yet counted and it's a very close call. It's possible we may also see legal challenges to the vote. And Exxon isn't the only company that's come under some shareholder pressure this week. That's right. On the same day, its main American rival, Chevron, also faced a shareholder revolt. Now, this was not as significant as what happened at Exxon, but it did lose an important vote where a majority of shareholders voted in favor of a dissident proposal for more aggressive action on climate change. So very much the same signal being sent to big oil, that its investment plans, its financial returns, and its future prospects are not consistent with how the market itself views climate risk. But the significant part is that that message is now coming from the investors themselves, I guess. Absolutely. In particular in America, where there still remains quite a strong degree of support for the oil economy, for free market capitalism. People tend to be skeptical about the UN climate accords or European courts when you get to the heartland of oil country. The fact that oil shareholders who tend not to be an environmentalist bunch are telling the management of these big boys, you better start taking climate change seriously. That is a message they can no longer dismiss as fringe. And this week, it hasn't just been investor pressure on big oil. There was also this legal challenge to Shell. That's right. There was an interesting court case in the Netherlands in which a judge ruled that Shell's fairly ambitious plans, I would say, for decarbonizing its portfolio, certainly much more ambitious than anything put forward by American oil companies, weren't good enough. The judge ruled that the company had to drastically reduce its uh, carbon emissions by 45% by the end of this decade, including the emissions coming from people like you and me who burn shell petrol in our cars. And that is what the judge ruled would be necessary to keep it consistent with international objectives like the UN's Paris Accords. But I would caution this may not stand. Shell is already planning to go under legal review to challenge this at a higher court. And even if the court ruling stands, what it would probably mean is that Shell would have to sell off its dirtiest, least efficient assets. That doesn't mean that oil will stay in the ground. The people who buy those assets are probably going to be less efficient oil majors or those in countries that don't have such tight rules, possibly national oil companies. And so we may very well see the same amount of oil being taken out of the ground, but just not by Shell. And what do you make of of all of this in toto, this fact that the super majors are in a way beset on all sides, sometimes the calls coming from within the house? I think this is the moment that even the most insular the most inward-looking of oil companies, ones so convinced within their own echo chamber that the age of oil will never come to an end. And here, ExxonMobil is the the clearest example of a company like this that is out of touch with the times. This is the moment that they had to wake up and realize they cannot continue on their traditional path. It was not so long ago that a former chairman of Exxon, Lee Raymond, a formidable, hugely successful in terms of financial success, chairman of Exxon, 
was a climate denier and would fund bogus science that would rubbish climate change. I traveled to Irving, Texas to interview him, and I challenged him on his climate denialism, pointing to evidence of how the company tried to do this propaganda. He was so incensed that he threw me out of his office. Today, Exxon's CEO, Darren Woods, doesn't deny climate science. The company acknowledges it's a reality. And it just said, well, we still want to make lots of new oil that is to develop and explore and produce more oil. And its own investors have said, that doesn't make sense. If you acknowledge the reality of climate change, that we're moving into a carbon-constrained world, you cannot expect to make the kind of returns we want as investors by continuing to dig up ever more oil and having no meaningful, credible plan for decarbonization. Vijay, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. In Scotland, the rate of people dying from using drugs could fairly be called a national crisis. The problem has been steadily getting worse this decade. And after years of inattention, Scotland's leadership is at last trying to figure out what to do about it. In 2019, which is the most recent year for which we had data, nearly 1,300 Scots died of drug-related deaths. Hamish Birrell is The Economist's public policy correspondent. That might not sound like a huge number, but Scotland is a small country and per person, it's a very high level. It's equivalent to roughly three times as many British people as died from similar deaths, 10 times as many European people. And it is probably even higher than the rate seen in America, which is suffering from an opioid epidemic, although it's very hard to say for certain because of differences in the way deaths are counted in each country. And so why is it that number has has gone up so much? Scotland has always seen a lot of deaths from heroin overdoses, and there has been some increase in the number in recent years. But the big change has been an increase in in the number of dying with cocaine in their system, and a particularly big increase in the number dying with benzodiazepines in their system. They're commonly known as kind of street benzos and can be bought very cheaply, often for as little as kind of 50p a pill when purchased in bulk. One possible reason for that big increase in the number dying with street benzos in their system is that in the early 2010s, doctors tried to cut back on the prescription of kind of legal varieties because they were worried about an increase in drug deaths, ironically. And the theory is that that led to an increase in the number of people using illegal varieties as they turned to the street to get their fix. The issue of buying from the street is that you don't really know what you are buying. The quality is mixed and the pills are of varying strength. And why is this so much more a problem in Scotland than in other parts of Europe? One reason is there's a cohort of drug users who started using drugs in the kind of early to mid-90s, around the time the first train spotting film came out. And they have continued to use ever since, and that's pretty bad for your health. But what we're seeing is increase in drug deaths amongst all age groups. And so that means some are starting to wonder if we have kind of something similar to the deaths of despair we see in America. 
Scots are also more likely to drink heavily, they're more likely to die young, and they're more likely to commit suicide than people in the rest of Britain. And so there's something specific then about Scottish drug users that contribute to these numbers? Possibly, yeah. I spoke to one guy who runs a drug service charity in Scotland, and he'd previously worked in Dublin and London. And he said, while many, many users in those two places use drugs to get high, in Scotland, it's much more common to use them to get as close to unconscious as possible. And that's not something you're really going to do if you're satisfied with where your life is. And so what's possible is that there's a kind of negative spiral in which bad social conditions contribute to drug use and kind of drug use then contributes to worse social conditions. And in in certain parts of Scotland, that's been an incredibly damaging combination. And what has the Scottish government been doing about it then as these numbers have risen? The government has actually been quite slow to respond. In 2019, it set up a drug task force to look at various different remedies to the problem. And then last year, when the latest figures came out at the end of last year, Nicola Sturgeon, the Scottish First Minister, sacked her public health minister. She then created a drugs minister to kind of directly focus on the problem. She's set aside new money to deal with it, so £50 million a year will go into tackling it. And there will be new standards implemented across the health system, which should enable quicker access to treatment. The government's also more widely distributed in naloxone, which helps reverse the effects of an overdose. They've also put some more money aside for residential rehabilitation, which is something that the Scottish Conservative Party have pushed quite heavily. Yet a number of experts in this area are dubious about because it's associated with an increase in deaths as people leave facilities and lack the support they had there. So it sounds as if they're looking for structural changes and then throwing money at the problem, at least. The Scottish government say they're blocked from doing a number of things which would help the problem. One thing they want to do is set up drug consumption rooms where people would be able to go and consume drugs safely. Their manifesto also promised that they would set up a citizens' assembly to consider decriminalizing drugs altogether. That, however, would be against British law. So their argument is that they need independence to be able to carry this out properly. And presumably a lot of the factors here are made worse, the fact that we're still in the middle of a pandemic. It's quite hard to say for certain at the moment. We don't have drug death figures for the pandemic year, although a number of people I spoke to weren't holding out much hope. But there is some reason for encouragement. There were a number of innovations in how kind of drug services were provided during the pandemic, which might continue beyond it. I spoke to a drug services worker in Dundee called Danny Kelly, who told me how because of a decrease in footfall to the needle exchange he ran, he was able to do more outreach work with people who had previously overdosed and were therefore more likely to overdose in the future. So he was going around basically checking up on how they were, giving them advice about safe equipment to use and generally looking out for their welfare. There's also been a greater distribution of naloxone kits, which reversed the effects of overdose enabled by the pandemic when Scotland's Lord Advocate said that they could be handed out by any government service, not just those who have been trained to do so. Most people I spoke to expected both of those things to continue after the pandemic. And so taking all of this together, what do you think the long-term prospects are here? Most people do now at least feel that the government is taking the issue seriously. It's definitely risen up the political agenda. There's more money going into it, and there's a range of kind of new interventions which are being tried. And they will hopefully begin to make a bit of difference. So they probably are now on the right track, but they're up against generations of drug use in some places and a kind of broader social malaise, which is a result of both government policy across the decades, but also kind of broader social conditions. So it's a pretty difficult situation to improve. Hamish, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jason.
Francisca Pizarro is a pop song by the Peruvian singer Renata Flores. In Spanish, it tells the story of the half-Incan, half-Spanish daughter of the conquistador before switching into Quechua, the language that the Inca spoke. Quechua is still spoken in Peru, but had long been maligned until recently. Renata Flores is a 20-year-old singer from Ayacucho in the highlands of Peru. Lucien Chauvin writes about Peru for The Economist and is based in Lima. She basically shot to fame in some ways six years ago when she did a cover of Michael Jackson's The Way You Make Me Feel. In Quechua, which is the largest indigenous language spoken here in Peru. In March, she released her first full-length album. It's called Eshkun, which means nine in Quechua. Nine was chosen because it has nine tracks. She kind of is mixing music with a bit of politics, with a bit of sociology, trying to get issues out there. What sort of politics do you mean? So with the language, she's drawing attention to its importance, to its use, but I I think she's also drawing attention to big issues. There are nine tracks on the album. Five of them are about the lives of five women who are important in Peruvian history. And then there are four tracks that bring up issues like domestic violence, inequality, the need to reconcile the economic model in the country with what's been going on in the countryside, in the area where she is from. So you have a bunch of issues coming together. And you mentioned she sings in in Quechua. I mean, how widely spoken is Quechua? Quechua is spoken by about somewhere between 3.5 and 4 million people in Peru. It's maybe 10% of the population. It's a language that for years was associated with poverty, associated with backwardness. But you're seeing a change. And I think people like Renata and other singers are helping revitalize the language. And so it's it's popular entertainment that, that's bringing Quechua back into the fold? That's part of it. In 2017, the national government began a policy of promoting indigenous languages. They began on the national TV station and national radio station broadcasts in Quechua and then Aymara. They're now doing one also in a native language to the jungle. There are programs now in Quechua. You can learn Quechua at university. There are schools that are teaching it. But I do think that what Renata is doing, what other artists are doing, are actually helping to get people interested in the language. This really vibrant mix of hip-hop and blues is really helping people understand that it's not a dead language. It's not the language of the Incas. It's not a language of poverty. It's actually a lovely language. And so that's her kind of of mission in, in speaking, at least in part, in Quechua? You know, I think part of it's that this is a young woman who spoke Spanish, would hear her grandparents, her grandmothers in particular, speaking Quechua and didn't quite understand why they didn't seem proud about that. So when she was 13, she decided to study this language. She's fluent in it. She continues to study it. But, you know, I think there are family reasons behind it. There are cultural reasons behind it. And in some ways, 
there's a lot of fun associated with it. If when you see her videos and listen to her music, she's having a good time doing it. It's something that makes you think, but it also makes you feel good at the same time. Lucien, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. It's been a lot of fun. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Marguerite Howell and Kim Gittleson. Our senior producers are Chris Impey, Duncan Barber, and Sam Colbert. Our producers are Stevie Hertz and William Warren, and assistant producers Jason Hoskin and Abisoye Oshindairo. Sound engineering this week by Saul Rivers. We'll all see you back here on Monday. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.